unity in the... As a, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love, and make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all, who was over all and through all and in all. And verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Thank you, George. And uh, keep your Bibles open if you've got them or your screens. Um, we're going to be having a look around the Scriptures uh, a little more than just uh, that passage in Ephesians, but it's a good one, isn't it? All of God's Word is good. It's good for us. Um, it's important. It's necessary. And um, it does us well and God's kingdom well uh, to sit under it. So we're talking this morning about a, uh, a pretty heavy theme, I think, or a pretty complex theme. And yet, at the same time, an incredibly straightforward theme, and that is the theme of forgiveness. Certainly from God's perspective, it's straightforward. Uh, two Sundays ago, we heard uh, what the Bible says um, about peace in our world and the absence of it, particularly around the focus of uh, global peace and how we, you know, doesn't matter what generation you've lived in, we're aware of the fact that global peace is elusive and we don't seem to be able to grasp a hold of it for very long before another lot of conflict rises its head. And we saw how the coming of the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, uh, is a reminder to us as his people, and it's a call to those who aren't yet his people uh, of a way to know um, peace in our world. Well, this morning we're looking at uh, what the Bible says about relational peace. Relational peace. So rather than just the globe, bring it in a little closer. Uh, what does it mean to have peace in our relationships? And there's a little question, and I'm sure you'd agree, that peace is often missing in our relationships. Uh, even the best of our relationships, if you think about them, uh, uh, maybe your minds have gone straight to the obvious ones where you've had um, uh, dysfunction or you've had um, codependency or there's been a toxic relationship or uh, something has transpired that's uh, really hurt you or, and, or you may have hurt someone else and you, you're sort of still reminded of that. Um, but even think about our, our best of relationships, right? there's often turmoil, isn't there, or, or times of uncertainty, a, a lack of peace um, that we would like. They're not ideal all the time. Well, why is this missing peace often the case in our relationships? Well, it's an easy solution. If you're a Christian person, you know the, the, the Bible story, we know uh, what God has told us about himself, about our world or his world, about our place in his world and our separation uh, from him uh, because of our sin. And, and, and that happens. That's what affects our relationships, particularly um, in that area. We see the effects of it. So that's, that's why we miss peace in our relationships. But while peace is often missing in many of our relationships, there is actually a key. I'm not into preaching keys because be very aware of anyone that tells you there's this key. There's this one silver bullet that fixes everything. But there is a key to restore peace, and it's a really obvious one. I wonder if you can guess what it is. We've already alluded to it. It's forgiveness. Forgiveness is the key to ensuring relational peace. And when you think about it, um, this shouldn't surprise us, uh, particularly if you've been a Christian for any length of time. Uh, forgiveness is the quickest and most effective way 
of restoring peace to any relationship, a bad one, uh, a half-average one, and even a good one. But this idea that forgiveness is what brings about relational peace in our lives um, isn't actually something that our wider culture shares, despite how we might think. We often hear our culture talk about longing and wanting peace, as we do, we all long and want for it. But just think about the times we live in, particularly over the last, I think, as recent as the last 10 years. It's really, really become obvious that um, our culture would not agree with us that forgiveness is the key to bring about peace in relationships. I've been observing this for quite some time, and it's really serious. It really is. Our society, our communities, we, we have slowly and but all but removed the concept of forgiveness from the way we think as a society, as a community. Uh, it's in the news all the time. I've got a stack of illustrations. I won't go through them all. Uh, one just recently on the, on the news again, just recently came to mind, of one of our uh, great Australian batsman heroes, who's not very great at the moment, looking at his record, um, Warner being, you know, rightly caught out for doing something wrong, gets punished. This punishment, it turns out, is eternal. It's forever. It can never change. And he's kind of saying, hang on, it's been this amount of time and I've kind of, you know, is there no pathway back? And Cricket, Cricket Australia is saying, no, there's no pathway back. That's not, not our community standards. They're not our values. You've transgressed. You had your chance. That's it. There is no forgiveness. That's just a, a common part, just a small, one very small example. Um, the great writer who I often quote and think he's marvellous, um, Tim Keller, highlights this really well. He wrote an essay only recently called The Fading of Forgiveness. And this is uh, what he says. He puts it into words, uh, this observation in our community. He says, influences in our world are starting to make forgiveness problematic. The first of these influences is a therapeutic culture. What's a therapeutic culture? A therapeutic culture is one that focuses on looking inwards in order to forge your own identity. And, and by looking inwards, your identity is forged based uh, on, on your desires. And then from there, once that's been established, then moving outward, and it becomes a demand that all of society, all the community around me, honours that individual identity, that individual identity based on my desires and the interests that I have with it. In other words, be true to yourself and then make sure everyone else is also true to you too. No one can, can step foot on or transgress or upset you or offend what it is that you have uh, figured out as true for you inside. That's a therapeutic culture. Second influence, Tim Keller says, he calls it this, um, this is rising honour and shame culture in our world, particularly of victimhood. Think about this one for a while. If you watch the news or listen to the news, it's now a virtue to declare boldly, publicly to the community where, you, where someone has wronged you, whether it be an organisation, an individual, a family, um, whatever it is, a spouse. Someone has wronged you and now uh, that you, you are now a victim and that becomes your your badge of honour. You stand proudly on the fact that you are a victim and you hold everyone to account to remind them daily, weekly, as often as you can type, as fast as you can on whatever social media platform you're on, that you are a victim. I've added a few words into how Tim Keller puts it. He puts it a little bit nicer, perhaps. But this is what he says. The more one has been oppressed and victimised, the more honour and moral virtue is accrued. On top of this, those who defend victims are also given honour. 
resulting in a scramble for business, government and other power structures to be seen as to be those that support victims and mercilessly punish victimizers. I've heard it said and observed this for, for many years that our world is as binary as it's ever been. There are victors and there are victims, oppressors and the oppressed. And, uh, and, and that you're either in one of those two groups. And if you're, you're an oppressor, you're a victor, uh, then you owe it to those that you've oppressed and to those victims. But um, the people telling you who's the victim and who's oppressed are those, obviously, rightly so, who are being victimised and oppressed. Now, we're getting to it. This results in a society of constant good versus evil conflict. It's the, the two groups. Whenever there's that, you just keep having this tussle. And yet, the issues become smaller and smaller and smaller. As everyone competes for status, as either I'm a victim or I'm a defender of victims against those oppressors. Well, this influence undermines the very concept of forgiveness and reconciliation. This is why the church is so off the nose at the moment in society. This is why Christians, and you know, we all sort of think we're being persecuted, or I hear a lot of people saying we've been persecuted. Um, we're not being persecuted when you look at persecution in actual countries where Christians face death and end of livelihoods and so on. We're not there yet. But we are certainly singled out amongst all other religions uh, for, over this one issue. It's because we actually are founded on this concept of forgiveness. And not only forgiveness, not only saying I forgive you, but also being able to patch up that relationship, restore it, reconcile it. That's what we're about. And so that's where that tension's coming from. Our world is constantly reminding us but you're that weird group that you don't stand and defend victims. Of course, the, the list of victims is, is growing and growing. There are real victims, and then there are an awful lot that actually aren't. Um, and, and, and so we're those that stand opposed to them, and we've got to be silenced and, and because we're, we're likely to encourage a victim to say, you know what, you have the power to forgive that person and release that, that victimness that you have, that, that sense. You actually, you actually can be a person that is confident and can, and can enjoy life to the full despite what horrible thing may have happened to you. You can do that through Christ, which we'll get to in a moment. That's why we're sort of shunned and put aside a little bit at the moment. Think about anyone you know that's been sinned against. And believe me, I'm not playing down the fact that people sin against people and do all sorts of horrible injustices to one another. That is absolutely the case. That's the fallen world we live in and all of us contribute to it. But think about someone you know who's been sinned against. They achieve instant victim status and everyone's expected to uphold and honour them as such forever. So we're actually locking them in. We're actually saying, no, no, you're that victim. You've always been, and we've got to protect and put this barrier around you and protect you forever and advocate you forever. But think about if that person decides one day to engage in this new concept called forgiveness and even reconciliation. You know, that story where they say, I've decided to forgive the person that's wronged me. There once was a time where we would just go, oh man, that is amazing. How have they done that? What an amazing person. That's just such inner strength to be able to do that. Um, well, now it's no, look out. Look out, how dare they offer forgiveness? They're a victim. They've offended the rest of us because we're, we're here to defend you. Now you've offended us for we can't defend you anymore. How dare you forgive someone who's wronged you and completely lose your hard-earned victim status? Well, Tim Keller continues, he sort of highlights out um, that uh, we live in a world where even good values um, are honoured and uh, now we think these values are great and we actually start honouring them often over and above 
the God who gave us these values, the, the, the God who created the concept of values, the one who revealed to us what a good life looks like. Well, dare I say it, there are many examples that come to mind, but if you need one to maybe, and I'm exaggerating, I'm using a, a particular example, but think recently of um, George Floyd and that horrific injustice that happened to him at the hands of those uh, police officers. Completely unacceptable. No one's denying that at all. A, a completely avoidable death. But can you imagine if right at the outset of that, as, as that, and I know that was a, one incident that just kind of was a tipping point for what was brewing in culture over a lot of time, and rightly so, I understand it, but can you imagine if Floyd's family and friends, and in fact that whole community, at the point of holding a public vigil, in the process of that, also said, we know this kind of injustice happens and our people have suffered this for centuries, but we're going to be different. We want to extend forgiveness to those police officers. We know justice has to be served, and may that happen through the courts, but we are going to forgive those police officers who wrong them. You see, I don't know if that's jarring to you. It may be a hint of where you're sitting with this. But the idea of offering someone forgiveness in this case would be seen as supporting the very power structures where the weaker party, in this case, George Floyd, has to forgive the stronger party or the one who perpetrated the crime against him. It's really only used, this concept of forgiveness, because it is around a little bit, but it's only used if it makes us feel better. Think about it. You really need to forgive this person because you'll be free of it and you'll become a better person, which is absolutely true. But often that's the only reason why we would encourage someone to use it. We'd actually today, in our culture, we much prefer to skip that, to put that aside, and to demand justice. To demand justice, which if we actually unpack and tease out, is more like retribution, vengeance, and that kind of thing. We can summarise it like this. Our culture today values rights over reconciliation. And we're as individualistic as ever, aren't we? We stand there, everyone. Oh, but these are my rights. Society and others or any person has transgressed my rights. They've, they've stood on my rights. Yep. How do we reconcile? How do we reconcile that? Well, is it any wonder that we live in an increasingly divided world? Well, what about us as Christians? It's all very well to talk about the community. What about us in the church? Well, sadly, we're often not a whole lot better. This time of year especially can put a spotlight on our own failures to reconcile and forgive even those who are closest to us, who have caused us hurt and offence. I know that we come to church and we know we sing the songs and we can, in those moments, mean it sincerely. We, we, we sing about forgiveness. We thank God for his forgiveness of us. We're even good at um, encouraging others to forgive others but perhaps we hold back from actually verbalising what we really think. Perhaps actually some of us actually like to actually harbour that non-forgiveness. We like to hide our lack of forgiveness under a layer of sort of politeness or niceties or avoidance. We just go quiet. We avoid having to confront it and face it. We sort of push it down. Perhaps sometimes we bury our hurt or our anger towards those who might have wronged us. Or do we forgive, but up to a point, and then we avoid the person and we refuse to go that step further of reconciling? I've heard people say that, say, yep, well, I get that, yep, I can forgive them, and I don't want another thing to do with them, that's it. Well, that's going 
half a step of two, which we'll look at in a moment. None of these things, none of those actions will bring us relational peace, even as Christian people. And Christmas is a time that reminds us, doesn't it, just how blessed we are that God chooses not to see forgiveness that way. Think about it. God chooses not to see forgiveness the way our uh, society and community seem to. And God chooses not to see forgiveness sometimes how we, even as Christians, who have received his forgiveness, sometimes want to see it. So determined was God that he was going to reconcile the world to himself, his enemies, he was going to reconcile them, those who had wronged him, he was so determined that he got involved, and this was a plan from before the beginning of time, that he would send his very own son. He would send Jesus as an extension of his grace and mercy to a whole world where not one deserved it. You know, without it, and this is the truth of the gospel, this is the truth of a Christian worldview, without what God did for us in Jesus Christ, there is literally no hope of ever knowing true and lasting relational peace. We, we literally have no hope of ever being able to offer the same forgiveness we've been given to others. Well, let's have a look at how God does view forgiveness. Um, just quickly, if you look at uh, Psalm 86, verse 5, this describes something about God that's, that's wonderful. Um, he sa- it says, You, Lord, are forgiving and good. You're abounding in love to all who call on you. You see, God is not a stingy God. He's not an unreliable God. He doesn't make life difficult. He doesn't um, prolong these things in our lives, these struggles, uh, in order to, to give us a lesson to learn. We certainly do learn lessons through them, but we don't blame that on God. That's not who he is. The scriptures reveal time and time again. Um, God doesn't even hint at saying, I can never forgive you, or I can only forgive you that much, or I only forgive you this amount of times and you've got to do this, 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 and this. God, by his very nature, is a forgiving God. It's in his character. He's gracious and he's generous. And it means that he longs and desires to offer forgiveness to all people. Anyone who asks for it, God is there, no matter how many times you have, and he will give it to you. There's another psalm. We won't look it up, but it's in your Bible. Psalm 32. It's the one just before the one we opened with this morning in our worship. And it encourages us not to hold back, ever putting off, seeking after God's forgiveness. Because he's always there, ready to freely give it. You know what else God does? He makes it crystal clear that he expects us to also forgive others in the same way he does. Those of us who have accepted his forgiveness, those of us who say we follow him, we know him, God's forgiveness of us is supposed to flow out in us forgiving others. That's what it means to bear witness to Jesus in this world. That's the peace on earth that we get to bring as the church. Um, Just quickly having a look at three verses in your Bible. They're up on the screen. We'll go through them fairly quickly. But each verse has two halves. I I want you to see this. The first half is a call to forgive. And the second half is a reminder that we've already been forgiven. Have a look. Colossians chapter 3 verse 13. Bear with one another and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. That's the first part. Second part, forgive as the Lord forgave you. What about 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11? Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice, strive for full restoration, encourage one another, be of one mind and live in peace. And here's the second part, the reference to God, what he's done, and the God of love and peace will be with you 
when we extend that kind of gracious forgiveness towards others, God is with us. Have a look at uh, Ephesians chapter 4, that last verse that George read from our reading this morning. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. I don't often quote this uh, translation of the Bible, but uh, listen to this from the message. Forgive one another as quickly and as thoroughly as God in Christ forgave you. You see how each of those verses have two parts? A call for how we're to forgive and then a reminder that we can forgive because we've experienced God's forgiveness ourselves. Well, if we look back at that, uh, the rest of that passage um, from Ephesians chapter 4, the, verse, the first five verses, um, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church that he loves dearly, that he values greatly, uh, the church in Ephesus. Um, it's a beautiful city. I've been there and visited uh, ancient Ephesus at least. A lot of it's buried, but a lot of it's now there to look at too. And he's been writing about this undeserved and unearned love and acceptance of God towards both sinners and saints. Sinners, that is Gentiles, and saints, the Jews, his own people. And, and, and this has all been made possible through the life, death and resurrection of his son. And now he's stuck in prison, as he often was, for, the, for preaching this message, for the cause of this gospel. And so he writes, As a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you then to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Just think about that for a moment. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. He's just spent three chapters talking about this calling. God's undeserved grace and favour. When we certainly were lost, dead, lost in our sins, cut off from God, without hope, in darkness, he's brought us into the light, he's given us hope, he's made us children, daughters and sons of the God Most High. Paul says, now... I urge you to go and live a life worthy of the calling you've received. I wonder, what do you visualise when you hear that about the life worthy of the calling? Well, he continues to give us a look at that. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. You see, it's love, isn't it? It's unity. It's peace with one another. This is what a life worthy of the calling looks like. We don't just accept God's forgiveness, lap it up for ourselves, as emotional as we might get about that and as deeply moved as we might be. We don't just do it. we go out and live. We, we live that out in relationship with others. It's a gift that God gives us, and like any gift, it's got to be opened and used, right? It's a gift that we're also called to others. It's the gift that is meant to keep on giving. Well, at one level, that's easy for us to hear. It's certainly easy to say, and we're all grateful for God's forgiveness. But the hard part is acting on it. So, what do we do? How do we act on it? What are some steps that we can take to live this out? Well, I want to speak to just for a moment a wonderful organisation, a Christian organisation. Who's heard of PeaceWise? There's been a number of people that have heard of PeaceWise. Yeah, okay, we might have to get some, um, some, uh, some training. They do some wonderful uh, training courses uh, for God's people to just understand the extent of all this, of, of forgiveness and reconciliation. It give, gives us a framework to help understand how we might apply this biblical teaching. 
uh, in our lives and in our communities. It's all about trying to uh, help people um, to be able to forgive and to be able to take some simple steps towards that rather than just get stuck on the songs or on the sentiment that we often do. So I just want to share you a few things from PeaceWise. They say it starts with just two steps. The first one is this, a decision to extend mercy, recognising that mercy itself is undeserved. Think about someone or something, I'm sure that, I'm no doubt if you're listening, someone has by now in your mind you've got some incident, some, some situation that might have happened. The first step we can take is to make a decision because Christ has forgiven us. Make a decision to extend mercy, but recognising that to even extend mercy to someone is actually undeserved. It'll always be undeserved. Oh, I can't do that, they don't deserve it. That's right. Extending mercy is undeserving. Step one, make a decision to extend undeserved mercy. The next one is to take an action. Make an action to show mercy. And to do that, whether or not the person responds uh, well or otherwise. That's a real hard one. I don't know where you're at with that. Some of us can be sort of get to the first one. We think, yeah, I get that. Oh, yep, and I'll extend, I'll extend mercy. And we can pray for a person or an incident, situation, an organisation, whatever it might be, and we can say, yeah, okay, sure, fair enough. To release my burden, my, my sense of burden with this, I'll forgive. But the action part's really, how do I show mercy to that person, to that organisation? And we say, oh, they're not going to, they've got a hard heart. And they may have been very, very unjust, horrible, horrible person or people or whatever it is. They're not going to respond to that. It doesn't matter. Regardless of their response, in what ways can I take action to show mercy? These two steps, by the way, mirror exactly what God's done for us. We were his enemies, right? And he looked at us as enemies cut off and separated and he said, I want you to, be, I created you for relationship and you made a choice not to be in relationship, but I still want that. So I'm going to... What? Make a decision. I'm going to extend mercy. I'm going to give you myself. I'm going to give you my son. And then he goes and shows, takes action. And lo and behold, on that night of nights, Jesus is born. His son is born and comes into the world. Well, of course, these are just the beginning. There's a lot more hard work to come. And that is to keep living it. So not only do we take some steps, but we also need to make some promises to ourselves into how we're going to move forward in this and there's a number of them there. Make some promises to yourself. This is all from PeaceWise. I will not dwell on this incident. I've forgiven, decided I'm going to extend mercy. I've done something, whether it's a card or made an attempt to reconcile, regardless of whether they've accepted it or not. But I'm not going to dwell on this incident. I'm free. I've forgiven and I'm not dwelling on it. I will not bring up the incident with the person in order to hold it against them. There's a tough one. I will not bring up the incident and use it against the person. Here's a tougher one. I will not talk to others about this incident. I will not keep living it and reliving it and dragging others into vicariously experiencing the same trauma from my perspective. I will not talk to others about this incident. And fourthly, I will not allow this incident to stand between us and be a hindrance to our relationship in so much as it depends on you. Can you see what's happening here? This is about in so much as it depends on you, if we want to accept Christ's forgiveness and then are prepared to extend that to others and seek reconciliation. I'm not going to dwell on it. I'm not going to bring it up. I'm not going to talk to others about it. 
and I won't allow this to stand between us and our relationship. When I think of you, uh, this takes time. This isn't four steps in three minutes. This takes a lot of time. I know people have taken years to do this, but they've got there. And they are truly free people. They really are. Well, which of these promises do you find the hardest? Let me be really honest. I find number one and three uh, often the hardest. Dwelling on things, you know, especially at night. Reliving things, things said, things done, things thought. And, uh, and not talking about things. When someone's hurt us, someone's something, not to raise it with others, even in little subtle ways. I, I, was hurt. I can't go into the details, but I've been really upset and hurt. Just keep reliving it, hoping someone might ask you what the details were. One and three are pretty tough. What about you? Taking two steps, making four promises to ourselves, and then lastly, keep in mind three things. The call to forgive others is one that must be done wholeheartedly. If we're going to take this step, we've got to go wholeheartedly, just like God did. He gave his all, he gave himself. He held nothing back. It wasn't like he went, I'll just go and give, I'll, give, I'll send an angel, this angel. Michael's has been marvellous for that last for millennia, and he's just, I'm going to send him down. He's a great angel. No, he sent himself, he sent his son. He gave his all. We must forgive wholeheartedly. Secondly, we can only be responsible for our part. And this is the bit I want to encourage you. That You may have questions, you go, yeah, but this, you don't understand. This is so tough. You have no idea what this person's done, what this organisation's done, what this boss has done, what's happened in my life, what this family member's done. You have no idea. It's just, it's unforgivable. Do we turn around to God and say, you can't forgive me, God. I, what I've done uh, is unforgivable. I hope not. Because God can forgive and he does forgive and he has forgiven and so must we, but we can only be responsible for our part. The reconciliation bit, the restoration of that relationship, whatever it looks like, requires two parties to be as equally committed to this. It requires the other person's acknowledgement that they're part of the problem and to repent from that, whether they, they realise they've caused it or, or haven't realised that they've caused it. And that's not our place. We can't control that. This is a real hard thing in life. We can't demand or insist on that happening before we give them, forgive them. That's the easy part, isn't it? You say, yep, I'm prepared to do this. When I see them do this or do that or when they do... No, no, no. That we need to be responsible for our part. In Christ Jesus, we are free, 100%, completely and wholeheartedly, we are free to forgive. We are free regardless of the other person's confession or their part to play in the issue. And then thirdly, and this is really important, forgiveness does not replace justice. There will be justice, but there's only one person that can be giving and who is authorised to, to uh, enact justice and to be truly just. There may be actions or consequences which follow, uh, even though you've forgiven a person, you've ex extended mercy towards them, you've made these commitments and you are ex starting to experience a sense of freedom and release and your relationship with God's growing stronger and you still live in hope of maybe full res restoration or you're living in part restoration with this person um, and, and um, you're just not sure where it's all at. But every now and then, there still may be consequences. That relationship may never ever be able to get back to where it was and that's Okay. Forgiveness doesn't replace justice. But we can trust God. We can trust God with our insatiable desire to see justice now. 
to, to see it measured out, to see someone get their just desserts. We all do it. That's why the entertainment industry thrives on action movies, right? It's all about seeing someone measure out justice and get justice. More than what they did, just they've got to pay. That's, let's face it, we can blow off some steam watching that stuff, but it's not real in, in real life, not in the life God has called us to. We, get to. we can trust God with our insatiable desire to see justice carried out, but it's not our place to do it. I wrestle with this. This is, this is a lifelong of wrestling. If you're not wrestling with it, well, then you're probably doing something wrong or you haven't understood it properly. But it really is. And, you know, it can be major things. It can be really small things. I remember the first incident I came across this as an 18-year-old was a, my, my car that I had. It was a VK Commodore. It was the first fuel-injected um, Holden Commodore uh, six-cylinder motor, the red motor, I think it was. Anyway, it was a nice car. And it cost me a whole $3,500 of hard-earned money and I uh, lent this car to my then girlfriend, Melissa, who's now Melissa Thornhill. <laughs> Whew. Uh, and um, she went on a youth group outing with it, and it was meeting someone in their property, and they were goat herders, or they had a paddock of goats for some reason. And he opened up the, goat, the, the paddock for all the cars that were coming from all the youth to park there. So Melissa parks there, and for some reason, one particular goat took a liking to my side review, review mirror. Well, he took a liking to himself. I, I know it was a male goat, because this is just this is a male thing, right? Walks past the cars, sort of has another look. Oh. Then got jealous, thought there was another <laughs> goat in the paddock, and he's got his herd and everything, and so he starts, he's, he's headbutting, the, and he did. He smashed the mirror. So Melissa gets back to the car, and it's an electric mirror. Actually had little lever thing, so there's cables hanging out, and, and his hooves have also gone bang, 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 bang up against the door, right? Just exactly, you're feeling the pain, just the hurt. Well, I was absolutely furious, not at Melissa, because she told me straight up, this guy made us park there. Right, I was so furious. This guy was filthy rich, by the way. He owned, he, he didn't even barely came to church. We know he tithed a lot while the church existed, but um, he didn't come to church much. The nature of his work was overseas, global business stuff. We never even met him, right? He just offered his property. To come. And, this, um, and anyway, I decided, you know what, I'm 18, I'm a man now. I'm going to ring up. So I found his phone number, and I rang him, and politely just said, look, just want to let you know there's a bit of an incident that's happened in your top paddock um, with one of your goats. And, and I'm telling him, it's going quieter and quieter and quieter. He's just letting me monologue. I'm waiting for him to sort of go, oh, sorry, oh, I had no idea. Look, get it fixed and just let me know the bill. That's what was my expectation. You know what he said to me? He cuts me off after a while. He goes, sorry, sorry, hang on, sorry. I'm sorry, what's this got to do with me? <laughs> this is fair income. Can you feel the rage? What's it, what's it, got, to do? <clears throat> what's it got to do with you? <laughs> All right. And I was nowhere near as articulate, and as I'm not even articulate now, but I was nowhere near as confident as I am now. Believe me, I was a, a, a quite an um, introverted 18-year-old. Just ask Melissa. She's not here today, but ask her when you think of it. Anyway, um, I was furious. I was outraged that that was his response. And he was genuine about it. I said, well, sorry, let me explain it to you. Let me not being so waffly. Let me get to the point. You've damaged my car. It cost me everything. I'm only a first-year apprentice or second-year apprentice, whatever I was. I don't earn much. Um, I'm really upset about it. Do you think you could offer to replace the side mirror and get the door fixed? You know? No. You parked the car. You, your car parked. It was like, happened. That's, you just parked the car. That's, sorry, mate. No. And then he hung up. Like, he was polite. He was laughing. He's going, no, no I'm not doing that. See ya, and hung up. Like, I was absolutely livid. So then I rang the next big authority in my life, my youth pastor. 
I'm going to ring my youth pastor. So I rang my youth pastor and said, uh, I said um, Mark, you're not going to believe, you're not going to believe this. You know, that youth outing you organise up there. That guy, he went, he goes, yeah, I heard about what happened to your car, Chris. I'll never forget this. He goes, so what did you do? I said, well, I've rung up and he wouldn't pay it. And I said, and he goes, yeah, so what would you like me to do? And I said, well, you ring him and get him to pay, to pay for the thing. And he said, well, if he hasn't paid you and you're the owner, why would he listen to me? And then he said, Chris, let it go. Get it fixed, don't get it fixed. Move on, right? And, you know, it's, it's like he was a lot more explanatory than that. But it was these principles. And he knew I was fuming months later. Way too long. It's disproportionate, isn't it? But it's big for us at that time. I don't want to make light of uh, injustice, and that uh, raises a whole lot of things about selfishness and things and, and idolatry and all that kind of stuff with our cars and items and things. But people will wrong us. People will wrong us. Wrong us. And our driving, driving motivation in forgiving others isn't to see justice dished out. It's not to see justice in our time, what justice looks like by how we define it. It's about leaving things to God, knowing that in his wisdom and in his big picture, and only he knows it, he'll measure out justice for those who need it. And he'll do it proportionately, unlike us. Our driving motivation as Christian people is to bring peace into this world, into our relationships, in the same way God has brought peace into his relationship with us through Jesus. We don't have to buy into a culture that seeks to honour or uh, victims or, or, or defend them tirelessly. Um, Christians don't have the right, says Tim Keller, or the ability or the need to bring God's judgment down onto others. That's not our right. We think it might be. It's not. It's God's right. Separate. We are not God. He lives in us and through us, but we are not him. We don't have the right, we don't have the ability, nor do we have the need to bring God's judgment down on others. No right, because it's for God to avenge. No ability, because only God knows what any person actually deserves. And no need. No one will get away with anything in the end. And that's something we leave to God. And we do so with whole and full hearts. Church, what a great way to end this morning than on gathering around the Lord's table for communion. This symbol of God's, uh, Jesus' shed blood, his broken body, that's what this remembrance meal is. It's a meal that calls us to remember and to celebrate what God has done for us, who we are in Christ as truly, freely forgiven people. I'm going to ask um, for the ushers to, to, to help us to come down. Um, if you could just um, be at the front there and maybe um, take the tablecloth off. And I think as we close, it would be good um, to sit in some silence as we segue into this time of communion and just reflect on who God might be laying on your heart or has laid on your mind or something that may have come to mind as, as you've been listening. Who's the Holy Spirit drawing your attention to today? Where can you and I contribute to relational peace this Christmas. And God wants for us all to know and experience that deep peace, which can only be known through the forgiveness that he offers us in our own lives. So we'll sit for a couple of minutes. There's a verse up on the screen, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, as we partake this remembrance meal. Let's reflect on this. God shows his love for us in this that while we, all of us, even the best of us, 
were still sinners, Christ died for us. 